0: Welcome to another episode of Unbecoming. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. As always, you can find us on Twitter at UnbecomingPod and Instagram at UnbecomingPodcast. If you've been listening to the podcasts addressing the question, Is evangelicalism a cult? Perhaps you have some insights to share or a question that might have emerged as you listened. Please do send those to unbecoming at gmail.com. And if you've been enjoying the podcast thus far, please do let your friends know about the podcast, review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or consider donating to Patreon, which includes access to exclusive members-only content. Having now reached the midpoint in this series on evangelicalism, I hope everyone listening realizes that this podcast is titled On Becoming for a Very Good Reason. Probably the simplest way of putting it is that I'm not tempting to follow Socrates in asking questions. People often think that the Socratic method should be seen as the process that leads the listener to the conclusion already held by the questioner. On such an account, the leader already knows and is merely helping those following to reach the desired conclusions on their own. But when Socrates says, I don't know, which he says over and over again, I actually take him at his word. Similarly, I don't already have the conclusion that I will reveal in, say, the 700th episode. Moreover, what I'm attempting to do goes beyond something like trying to help listeners decide which category they fit into, where they fit in existing categories. Among the goals of this podcast is putting into question what seems like the obvious options. I'm personally looking into evangelicalism because that's what I've known from my earliest moments. But I'm also examining it because, for good or for ill, evangelicalism in the United States still has very significant political involvement. Understanding evangelicals and how evangelicalism relates to both the Bible and to other denominations is helpful in sorting out our categories. Usually, we use our categories to make sense of things. We have a bird category, and when we see a bird, that seeing-as pattern gets tripped. But what if some of our categories are themselves either wrong or dysfunctional? If that's the case, then we're going to have trouble dealing with any new incoming information because our categories won't work for the actual situation. I believe that religion in many ways is helpful, but alas, there are many forms of it that can be extremely harmful. My conclusion at this point is, the more fundamentalist the form of religion it is, the more harmful it's likely to be. But the reason for examining evangelicalism in detail is that I'm hoping you'll be able to see how certain kinds of beliefs prove harmful. In the previous episode, I talked about the harm that the idea of original sin causes, particularly when it takes the form of belief in something like a sin nature and undermines any human efforts at being good. I am working on believing that human beings came into the world in no particular way when it comes to sin or shortcomings, or whatever term you want to use. Nietzsche went so far as to write a book titled Beyond Good and Evil. He rejected the notion of evil as simply an invention of the prophet Raster. Yet nature still believes that some things are good and some things are bad. Consider what he says in Daybreak. This is section 103. It goes without saying that I do not deny, unless I am a fool, that many actions called immoral ought to be avoided and resisted, or that many called moral ought to be done and encouraged. But I think the one should be encouraged and the other avoided for other reasons than hitherto. We have to learn to think differently in order, at last, perhaps, very late on, to attain even more, to feel differently. Did you catch that last part? We need to learn to think differently, says Nietzsche, so that eventually, eventually, we might come to feel differently. But Nietzsche makes the point that the feeling different might not come along for quite some time. Why? Because asking questions about evangelicalism or religion in general may serve to convince your left brain that there are aspects that need a second look or aspects that need to be discarded. But your right brain, the part that feels, needs to be able to feel differently, just as Nietzsche says. That's what I meant when I said, I am working on this. My own experience is that Nietzsche is correct you do have to convince your little reason in order to make any headway in developing your ideas regarding lots of things, including spirituality and religion. But the goal is ultimately to convince the right brain, or the right hemisphere, or what Nietzsche calls your great reason. But I do want to add something here that is, I think, applicable for some listeners. It's also a section in Daybreak. This one is titled, Doubt as Sin. Christianity has done its utmost to close the circle and declared even doubt to be a sin. One is supposed to be cast into belief without reason by a miracle and from then on to swim in it as in the brightest and least ambiguous of elements. Even a glance toward the land, even the thought that perhaps exists for something else as well as swimming, even the slightest impulse of our amphibious nature, is a sin exactly what we should rightly call doubt, is not immediately obvious. Though, of course, you'll find that there are people who are more than convinced that they know. However, from my perspective, if you're asking questions about a given doctrine, you are probably trying to understand what it is that your group believes. But it goes deeper than that. Having spent hundreds and perhaps thousands of hours speaking with college aid students who grew up in the evangelical milieu, what I found is that the personal experience of doubt was much more diffuse. When I'd ask specific questions like, do you have problems with the virgin birth? Or are you wondering whether Scripture is truly inerrant? Not a single person ever said yes. It's this one, this one particular doctrine. There was, though, an important exception to this point. I once met with two folks Uh, The guy was a student in one of my classes, and the woman was his girlfriend. I met with them to talk about hell. Simply put, they were horrified. Just in case you're wondering, horrified is exactly the right verb. They were horrified that all of their non-evangelical friends were going to burn in hell, and their horror wasn't cool and detached. How can you talk about hell without getting a little hot under the collar? How does one respond to this kind of concern? I decided that I needed to quote an authority. And yes, I'm smiling as I say that, because one might think I'm about to fall into the appeal to authority fallacy. But this particular authority, Billy Graham, was once perhaps the best-known evangelical, and he spent much of his life conducting crusades, intense weeks of evangelistic preaching that adopted an old term from something better left forgotten. But Billy surprised many people when he went on record in McCall's magazine back in January of 1978. Here's what he says, and I'm quoting him verbatim. I used to believe that pagans in far-off countries were lost, were going to hell, if they did not have the gospel of Jesus. I no longer believe that. I believe that there are other ways of recognizing the existence of God, through nature, for instance, and plenty of other opportunities, therefore, of saying yes to God. For someone who spent most of his adult life trying to convert people to Christianity, this, I think, is a huge step forward. More recently, he said that he thinks that the number one problem in the world today is racism. Yeah, in other words, not sin, not lack of belief in the Bible, or something like that. Of course, having mentioned this remarkable change in Billy Graham, I have to say that this revision was not openly discussed in the evangelical world of which I was a part. In fact, one of my colleagues almost surreptitiously handed me a piece of paper with that portion of the interview. In other words, evangelicals have not followed Billy Graham on this point. Probably some of you know that Rob Bell published a book titled Love Wins. The subtitle is a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. And in this book, he put various evangelical views regarding heaven, hell, and salvation into question. What surprised me at the time was the fury this book engendered in the evangelical world and beyond. His book was quickly denounced as teaching universalism. Now, that is not a category that is even remotely intuitively obvious. So let me just say it's simply the idea... Jesus' death, it's for everyone. Everyone's going to be saved through Jesus no matter what. But as it turns out, the controversy ended up being about whether Bell was actually a universalist. The reaction in the evangelical world was so fierce that Bell needed to leave the church where he was a pastor. In effect, he was exiled from the evangelical community. Bell points out that the evangelical version of salvation requires both a person who presents the gospel and then someone who accepts that message. As he puts it, and here I'm quoting, so is it not only that a person has to respond, pray, accept, believe, trust, confess, and do, but also that someone else has to act, teach, travel, organize, fundraise, and build so that that person can know what to respond, pray, accept, believe, trust, confess, and do. I think this gets at the problem really well. Exactly what it means to become a Christian or to follow Jesus is confusing. What exactly do you have to believe? If you ask a question like that, you're going to get as many different responses as people you ask because it's highly unclear how all of this works. I've alluded to what Jesus seems to teach in Matthew 25, which is, if they've done any acts of kindness, it was as if they'd done acts of kindness to him. In other words, there's nothing to confess or believe or teach. The test is really simple. Were you a kind person? Unfortunately, even though this is the clearest teaching that we have from Jesus regarding heaven and hell, it's not the one that most Christian groups have chosen to guide their thinking regarding evangelism. Here we need to confront the basic salvation formula that is at the center of evangelical belief. I want to point out in advance that this formula is clearly an interpretation. You might decide that it's the right interpretation, but you would still need to face the fact that the language and the concepts used are questionable. Since there's nothing like the approved version, let's look at the most popular one, the one that stands behind evangelicalism's conception of salvation. It's called The Four Spiritual Laws, and it was created by Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, which now goes as Crew. I'm assuming that this was a group project, so I will be talking about the authors of this tract. So, the four spiritual laws, it opens with this explanation. Just as there are physical laws that govern the physical universe, so there are spiritual laws that govern your relationship to God. Perhaps it's just me, but I find the notion that there are spiritual laws that somehow complement the physical laws of the universe to be simply absurd. I'm not saying this couldn't be the case. I'm simply saying that this principle of spiritual laws is stated as if it were some objective fact. Just to be clear, the Bible doesn't talk about spiritual laws. In fact, the Bible was written long before any of the laws of physics were discovered. But wait, were those laws discovered? Or were they how human beings interpreted their surroundings? Put more bluntly, you don't have to spend much time in the philosophy of science to recognize that our conception of the universe has proven useful for technological reasons. But the problem is that it's utterly impossible for us to know just how accurate these scientific facts are. In other words, how well do they really describe the world? The laws of science have clearly been made by humans. Things fall down. And scientists first spoke of the force of gravity, and then the curvature of the space-time continuum. These theories are the ways in which human beings make sense of falling objects. We just don't know the answer to one key question. Are these theories merely reflective of human intelligence, or do they really describe the world? That's an open question. It's a question that is, in the world of philosophy of science, very much at debate. Now let's go back to the four spiritual laws. The first is God loves you. and uh, This is that the, the tract has certain words that are spelled out in gigantic capital letters. So it's God capital letters loves you and offers a wonderful plan. Yes, capital letters plan for your life. For the first point, the author references, you know, the old chestnut John 3.16, so for God so loved the world that he Gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. For a long time I've wondered what it means to say that God loves the world. Perhaps this seems just obvious to you, but I'm really not sure what it means. Growing up in the evangelical world, the idea that God loves me was a given. But I still don't know what that's supposed to mean. Does God take an interest in all of the facets of our lives? I was taught that I was supposed to have a personal relationship with Jesus. I hope that everyone listening realizes that such an expectation doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I also hope that everyone realizes this kind of language is simply not found in the Bible. It's not found in the history of theology. It is a pure invention of evangelicals in the 20th century. It's perfectly understandable that the disciples had a personal relationship with Jesus. Duh. But how am I, living two millennia later in a different part of the world using a different language with vastly different conceptions of the universe, how am I supposed to be personally related to Jesus, who, according to evangelical beliefs, once lived, then died, then rose again, and is now seated in heaven? You might have seen or read about the Super Bowl ad, He Gets Us, that appears to be funded by conservative Christians who would most likely qualify as evangelicals. But really, If you think about what is being put forth as truth, it falls apart very quickly. Yes, Jesus, being a human being, would have experienced the full range of human emotions, frustrations, hopes, desires, all that kind of stuff. However, what it's like to be human in our time is a very different experience. At this point, evangelicals will likely say that Jesus is up in heaven watching us and maybe doing more than watching, depending on one's theology, and he understands everything we're going through. But again, this is merely something asserted without any evidence. Now, they might perhaps cite Psalm 139, which reads, in part, For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance, In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, which none of them as yet existed. As you can tell, if we take this piece of poetry or prayer as putting forth theological views, it would seem that God is intimately involved with our lives. Moreover, God would be using something more powerful than Google Calendar, since this verse suggests that God does this for everyone. Lurking in this passage, of course, is the idea that God knows everything about what is going to happen to us. Perhaps that's true. Note that no one, certainly not I, can argue against that. But that's hanging a huge chunk of theology on a pretty slender branch that threatens to cave under its weight you might benefit from being reminded that there are some other psalms that are conveniently ignored, such as, O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall be they who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Evangelicals generally decry such psalms known as imprecatory psalms, by the way, as outmoded or superseded by Jesus' teaching regarding loving one's enemies. But, of course, it's interesting how one picks one thing and ignores the other thing. As to the plan, the reader is given this Bible verse, I came that they might have life, and they might have it abundantly. The track goes on to say, why is it that most people are not experiencing this abundant life? And here we come to a basic problem with this approach. What exactly is this abundant life? The authors of the tract define this as having a life that is full and meaningful. Those are the two words I use. Both of those words, though, are not easy to define in the context of any given person's life. What is the opposite of full? Well, I guess empty. And the opposite of meaningful would be, I guess, meaningless. But here's where things get complicated. The track presupposes that all people who do not have Jesus in their lives are suffering from emptiness and meaninglessness. Is that actually the case? When I say that things get complicated, what I mean is something basic like, what does it mean to have a meaningful life? If you ask that question and then don't give it much further thought, it might seem obvious. But the reality is that meaningful gets defined in many ways some of which are probably more meaningful than others, to be sure, but there isn't anything like a standing standard definition of what a meaningful life looks like. Or, better put, there are so many ways in which a life can be meaningful. Back when I was a doctoral student, I met someone whose goal in life was to be a scuba instructor on a particularly teeny island in the Pacific Ocean. That was his only goal. We haven't been in contact since, alas, because I would love to ask him how that's worked out, particularly since his father was the voice for some uh, well-known evangelical radio programs. From my point of view, teaching people to scuba helps them to appreciate the life in the sea, and that seems a meaningful calling. In effect, the real question is something like, how much and what sort of meaning do you need to be full? And that's a question that can only be answered by a specific person. And even that is probably not sufficient. As you may have discovered, what it means to have a sense of meaning changes over time. It's not anything like a constant. So, for instance, you get married, perhaps have some children, and then what's meaningful to you is strongly connected to your spouse and those children. The point is simply this, there is no secret meaning to life, it arises from our context. We discover what meaningful things are available to us given our milieu. That's the, so to speak, good news. The bad news is spiritual law number two, man is sinful, another caps, and separated, yes, more caps, from God therefore he cannot know and experience god's love and plan for his life now it's at this point that the confessing begins the track reminds readers that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god to be honest there was a time in which i thought i knew what that meant but now i simply don't know what it means to fall short of the glory of god he's god right so in what possible world might i have not fallen short of his glory Isn't that simply definitionally true, that I as a human being, who is finite and imperfect and whatever, simply could not live up to the glory of God? That seems just obvious. And it also seems like a very cruel thing to expect us to live up to that. Thus the tract is trying to make me feel guilty for not being God. What? Then the tract tells us that, quote, man was created to have fellowship with God, But because of his own stubborn self-will, he chose to go his independent way, and fellowship with God was broken. Really? Human beings were created by God so that he could fellowship with them? How was this broken, exactly? Who did the breaking? I've mentioned before that in evangelicalism, if anything goes wrong, it's your fault. God is never, ever at fault. The tract doesn't mention the story from Genesis 3 about the fall, but I think it presumes such a story. Sin is described in the tract as, quote, an attitude of active rebellion or passive indifference. But here it should be clear that the story the tract is attempting to tell has little basis in reality. Frankly, it's hard to say that everyone who isn't an evangelical is rebellious or indifferent. So all those practicing Buddhists, Confucianists, Jains, Muslims, and Taoists, Are either in rebellion against God or indifferent? It's only because the track starts with this premise as being true that it can get any traction. Then we hear that, quote, the wages of sin is death, which is something that Paul says in the book of Romans. That's something that clearly needs further interpretation. I have to confess that one of the strangest experiences I've ever had was when a colleague tried to argue in what he thought, or at least what he claimed, was a philosophical paper, that even the tiniest sin required that God damn any such sinners to eternal punishment, and anything less than this would be unjust. The people sitting in that room who listened to that paper were horrified. To the person presenting the paper, this just seemed obvious. To the rest of us, this just seemed crazy. The third law is, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him you can know and experience God's love and plan for your life. Such a statement implies what's called the substitutionary account of atonement. According to this theory, Jesus didn't just die. He died for your sins just to be clear, this is only one of the competing theories as to what Jesus' death means or doesn't mean. There are others such as Christus Victor, which is the idea that Jesus overcame sin through his death. But all this assumes quite a lot. In the background, there's something like a war going on between God and Satan, between good and evil. The problem, of course, is that there's not a whole lot of evidence for this view. The tract authors also include the old chestnut about Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I mentioned last week's podcast that I was planning to give a paper on Nietzsche and idolatry at a conference on idolatry. During that paper, I said something about what Jesus had said. The Hebrew scholar in the group immediately responded that I should say that such and such a book, say the Gospel of Matthew, has Jesus say this. Do you see the slight but all-important difference? One of the complications of the Gospels is that they were, were all written many decades after Jesus was alive. And they were written in Greek, a language that Jesus just simply didn't speak. So even the words of Jesus are already translated into another language. If you speak more than one language, you'll probably be able to appreciate that the subtleties between saying something in one language and saying it in a different language may be hard to capture. We're still left, though, with this very blanket statement about Jesus being the only way to the Father. So let's just say that's 100% true. What does that mean? I mentioned the universalist position. Universalists would say that Jesus provides a way for everyone. But I've heard evangelicals, yes, real evangelicals, strain to interpret this in a broader light. Namely, that Jesus may be the way, but there are different ways to Jesus, including the major religions and, as Billy Graham says, through nature. How do you get from nature to Jesus? Well, I don't know, though I can see how you might get from nature to God. Further, when Jesus says he's the only way to the Father, what does that mean? We now have in place an entire theological system to make sense of this statement. But I can't even begin to ask what people hearing Jesus, assuming he really did say this, would have thought. The Father? Who's that? As it turns out, Christian theologians debated this for centuries. There are exquisite formulations of how exactly the Father is related to Jesus and also to the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, didn't have its own theology until much later. Finally, the fourth spiritual law reads, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Then we can know and experience God's love and plan for our lives. Perhaps some of you have heard this long enough so that it just sounds natural. But it's really important to recognize that the statement says much more than it likely intends. First, this is a highly individualist conception of what it means to follow Jesus, or to be a member of the community he founded. Such a view only became possible in the wake of the Reformation and then the Enlightenment, the idea that salvation is for each individual, rather than for the body of Christ, also known as the Church. Second, this formulation of receiving Christ has very little evidence going for it. The authors cite this passage, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. But this only adds further fuel to the question what does it mean to receive jesus what does it mean to become a child of god didn't god create us according to the evangelical view which would seem to make us already children of god the tract as is typical for evangelicals makes reference to being born again if you haven't listened to the episode titled you are not far from the kingdom you might want to give that a listen there i attempt to show that jesus doesn't have anything like a formula for following him or maybe we should say he has a whole bunch of different formulas yes he speaks of being born again but evangelicals skirt around places where jesus is reported to say at least twice that anyone who wished to follow him must sell their possessions and give the money to the poor that's a must that is not optional And as I pointed out, Peter responds by saying that that's exactly what he and the others have done. But evangelicals never talk about this requirement. At this point, the tract writers pick out a verse from Revelation, a weird book if ever there were one. And it's completely out of context. But they try to apply it universally. The verse is, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him. This is a passage directed to the church at Laodicea. This point is, of course, usually overlooked. There's nothing about this verse that suggests that it applies to anyone who happens to be interested. Then the authors get to the prayer of confession. Here's how it goes. Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life and receive you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving my sins and giving me eternal life. Take control of the throne of my life. Make me the kind of person you want to be. Once again, note the highly individualistic nature of this concept of salvation or getting right with Jesus or whatever you want to call it. But note something else. Apart from the fact that the authors provide several verses in support of what they're saying, even the language of this prayer is so out of keeping with how the Bible talks about following Jesus. Where do you find anything like thank you for dying on the cross or take control of the throne of my life? That's right, this is extra-biblical language that's been interwoven with Scripture passages to make it sound more legit. It's also interesting that the prayer thanks Jesus for giving the person sins, though it doesn't address when this forgiveness takes place. Of course, if you're a universalist, it's already happened. If you're an evangelical, it seems to be, one person at a time. The forgiveness would seem to happen at the moment one prays the prayer. Perhaps you can see why this prayer was formulated. The advances of technology in the 20th century were used to their full extent by evangelicals. Someone named Paul Rader was first the pastor of a large church in Chicago and then began to hold evangelistic campaigns in a specially constructed tent beginning in 1922 the tent was designed to hold 5,000 people. That may not be very significant if you're just thinking about it as a number. You have to remember, this is over 100 years ago. The music for these events uh, turns out to be jazzy. Remember 1922, jazz age? Meaning that the radar was giving people the music of their time. Beginning in 1925, radar began broadcasting services, as well as other programming. Then someone named Charles Fuller began broadcasting what's called the Old Fashioned Revival Hour in 1937. By the mid-1940s, it was estimated that he had 20 million listeners. Fuller, of course, went on to found Fuller Theological Seminary. And it was back in the 1940s that Graham got his start. Thus, evangelicals in the 20th century were reaching millions of people and thus needed something very basic to introduce what they thought was the heart of the gospel. By necessity, it needed to be short and sweet. Well, not so sweet. Remember, the focus of such a tract was the person who was not religious and who needed very basic information. Unfortunately, someone praying this prayer would have little idea of what lies on the other side of the prayer. Of course... So far, we've been examining the basic presentation of the gospel and the prayer of confession and trust in Jesus. But that's not the end of it. Lifton writes that confession is carried beyond its ordinary religious, legal, and therapeutic expressions to being a cult itself. Now, you might think that such a comment is really overblown, like, isn't that just over the top? But confession is something very basic to evangelicalism. A couple of weeks ago, an article appeared uh, in the New York Times titled Woodstock for Christians, Revival Draws Thousands to Kentucky Town, and it was about a revival happening in Wilmore, Kentucky, at Asbury College and Theological Seminary. It began after a regular chapel service, when some students brought their mattresses to chapel with the intention of staying. There were at least 50,000 people who attended. Asbury's religious tradition is that of Wesleyan holiness, a very narrow slice of evangelicalism that holds out hope for sinless perfection. If you're thinking that they can't be serious about this, then you misunderstand their aspiration. I remember working in a mission in Chicago for homeless people, and there was a guy who got up and declared, I thank God that I haven't sinned for 14 years. That announcement left me speechless. Who thinks it's possible to go 14 years without doing anything wrong? Actually, the very first thought that went through my head was this. Well, you've just broken your record. Anyone who claims to be sinless is a liar. Now, revivals have been going on in the United States for centuries. They are usually moments of repentance. The people who attended the Asbury revival attributed their personal spiritual experiences to the Holy Spirit. One person put it like this. We've been beat up by life. We all have been over the last few years. Everyone is looking for healing. The issue here is what kind of healing is needed. One of the weird features of evangelicalism is that it fetishizes confessions. The more you need to confess, the cooler you seem. I grew up with testimony envy, hearing all these remarkable stories of the horrific things people had done in order to, you know, get to the place where they came to Jesus. At least in evangelicalism, having a lot to confess is seen as kind of enviable. These revivals almost always have times of open confession. Someone gets to the mic and starts talking about his or her drug problem or alcohol problem or addiction to porn or food problem. You get the basic idea. It would be such a change if people were to say something like, I've way exceeded my carbon footprint. But you might ask, what is this all about? Why do people do this? Lifton's take on a function of confession in totalist environments is helpful. All right. So first he talks about what's called personal purification. He says one is constantly purging all that is sinful from one's life. But of course, here's the problem. Since sin continues, confession continues right along with it. In evangelical circles, such confession is normally seen as a confession to God. But the reality is that one is confessing to both the leadership and its members. In such a context, it might be thought that confessing any sin would be embarrassing. Yet those who confess the most in the evangelical context often do so with a smidgen of pride. Those who have dramatic conversion stories are held in high esteem. Second, Lifton calls such confessions an act of symbolic self-surrender, the expression of the merging of the individual and environment. But to whom or what is one surrendering? I think the evangelical answer is going to be that one is surrendering to God. But confession also serves as a surrender to the narrative of evangelicals, that we are all sinners and deserve eternal punishment. It is surrender to the community. One recognizes the evangelical authorities as sent from God. To this, Lifton adds a third feature, what he terms maintaining an ethos of total exposure. The basic premise of any confession at a revival service is that one should not hold back. One should tell it all. Every thought, every action should be open to the inspection and, of course, possible condemnation of others. In effect, there is no sense of privacy. Even the desire for privacy is worthy of condemnation. It is a further sin which wraps one's entire life in a bundle of sins. Let me quote from Lifton again. The cult of confession can offer the individual person meaningful psychological satisfactions in the continual opportunity for emotional catharsis and the relief of suppressed guilt feelings, especially insofar as these are associated with self-punitive tendencies to get pleasure from personal denigration. Confessing helps relieve the burden of guilt, but Lifton points out that human beings can also get pleasure from admission of guilt. I'm not sure that's quite the right word, but I see what he means. Perhaps it's more the pleasure of being at one with the group. Few things are as powerful in group formation than the sharing of one's own difficulties or shortcomings. When we share these kinds of things with one another, we have a sense of oneness. But of course, the question that needs to be asked is whether such confessions should be trusted. Followers can easily be tempted to tell things that aren't quite so bad and leave out all the bits that are. Further, the demands such confession places on adherence is too absolute. None of us are able or have any desire to share our deepest secrets. So those don't usually come up for confession. Lifton cites Camus, who, as one of his characters say, authors of confessions write especially to avoid confessing. The idea here is simple. One presents a version of oneself to the public. But then the difficulty is, according to Lifton, that there's a difference between the performer and the real me. In effect, then, there is the account one provides to the group, and then there is the reality that cannot be shared because it's too personal. And this situation, Lifton says, and I think he's right, leads to the development of two selves, the one that's on display and the one that's real. While I think Lifton is correct, I think the reality is even more complicated. Philosophers often talk about the divided self, We noted that Nietzsche thinks that we're moved by various forces within us, forces that take opposite sides and often force us to choose one over the others. From a phenomenological point of view, I think this is totally correct. If you have any questions about what a divided self means, just consider how your conscience is able to question your actions or motives. And realize that having a divided consciousness is what enables us to critique ourselves. But this point also helps explain why Litvin says that rather than eliminating personal secrets, it increases and intensifies them. I don't know when I first realized that evangelicalism actually encourages this separation. In effect, then, there is the account one provides to the group, and then there is the reality that's just too personal to share. Finally, the demands of purity and confession make it almost impossible to hold any healthy perspective on oneself. I've addressed this point or problem when I spoke it up about evangelical perfectionism. Just like the Wesleyan holiness folks, evangelicals keep insisting that one could be free from sin if one tries hard enough. Of course, they also insist that human beings are fundamentally sinful. Yes, these things are not really reconcilable, and unfortunately... There are many things in evangelicalism that, if you look at them, are fundamentally inconsistent. If I'm so sinful, can I do anything good without God's help? It was always so painful to encounter bright students who, because of the evangelical injunction to humility, found it impossible to have a healthy self-image. They had been told that their intellectual abilities were gifts from God, and such students struggled even with compliments they have been trained to see things like, oh, it's not me, it's all God's grace. Of course, getting this part right is really hard. Everyone has certain innate talents that can be actualized or left unactualized. You might have great talent, but circumstances don't allow for its development. You ask your parents for a guitar, but they can't afford one. So your career playing guitar might be off the table. But the real problem with this it's-all-God way of thinking that Once again, only God gets credit. You don't get any. Which leaves you in this weird place where you think you've done a lot to have gotten where you are, but somehow your diligence, patience, and hours of hard work are overlooked or downplayed in favor of giving God the credit. This is why Lifton says, The cult of confession makes it virtually impossible to attain a reasonable balance between worth and humility. From my own experience in evangelicalism, that is as good a description as I can think of. The opposite view, I guess something like I'm completely responsible for my success, simply goes against reality. None of us would ever be able to achieve anything that we've achieved apart from others. I used to make that point by saying to students, when I give you an A, to whom should that go? All of us should realize that that we could never have done anything on our own. Someone taught you to read. Other people wrote books for you to read. When I think back to all my music teachers and philosophy professors I've studied with, I'm fairly sure I wouldn't have gotten very far apart from their help. I'm hoping that this isn't a new thought for you. We are greatly indebted to all the people who have helped us along the way, and one hopes that we will also help them along their way. So here's a little homework for next week. Think about one of the things you do well. You're probably multi-talented, so just just pick one. Now think about how you got there. Consider who helped you along. But consider what you needed to do to get there. In his book, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell argues that we need to do something 10,000 times to become not just good, but great at it. He uses the examples of the Beatles and Bill Gates as having spent 10,000 hours playing music or coding. But there's nothing magic about this number. You shouldn't take it very seriously. The useful part about this number is it just gives you a sense of how long it takes to be good at something. It also reminds you, I hope, that you have gotten to be where you are also because of you. Our culture tends to glorify individuals, they're famous or whatever because they're so talented. But that's not really correct. Any story like that leaves out lucky breaks, things that happen to you that you could never have foreseen or planned. And so it only gives you part of the story. And the other story, of course, is all those who've helped us along the way. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Thank you for listening to On Becoming. Don't forget to join us next week.